in the simplest terms, what's at stake is that it's an existential threat to having writing in film and television be an actual sustainable career. Welcome to the Ronin Project Podcast, a show about Asian Americans in politics rocking the boat, breaking the rules, and taking on the big fights. I'm your host, Bill Wong. Buckle up, it's time for Ronin's to Roll program. Hello, Ronin Nation. I'm excited to have a very special guest on the show this week. Jeannie Fan Wong is a strike captain for the Writers Guild of America and co-chair of the WGA Women's Committee. She has worked on Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest, and Arrow. A child of Vietnam War immigrants, Jeannie is a Vietnamese Chinese. She was raised Buddhist in the San Gabriel Valley with stints in Orange County and once in a Mormon town in Nevada. After interning in politics, getting certified as a first responder and a stint working at an oncology lab, she was on a pre-law public health path. But this work convinced her to live by her favorite Han Solo line, never tell me the odds, and dive into her real passion, Hollywood, where she worked her way up as an assistant on six shows. Her genre agnostic work skews Sahara dry wit meets flawed character study and epic worlds. She also can't resist a good love triangle. Jeannie is a cat mom to Gabby Soprano, becoming a breakfast burrito sommelier, which I will ask her about later, and trying to achieve the glass skin and matchy fashion looks of her favorite K-pop. Hi, Jeannie. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. Let's get right into the reason why I wanted to have on the show. Can you give us a little background on what you do as a writer and your current role in the WGA? So before the strike, I was a co-chair of the Women's Committee, as you had mentioned, and the Women's Committee is about 300 or so active members who identify as women, but there's about 4,000 women-ish total, last time I checked, who are in the guild. That includes people who may be retired and whatnot. And basically, we put on year-round events and meetings for community building. For instance, we did an unofficial mixer to raise money for pro-choice earlier in the fall, and we'll have guest speakers come in to talk about sort of like mid-career advancement and whatnot for women, pay equity. And it's been a really sort of like fulfilling role to be co-chair of the Women's Committee and to make it a very intersectional place and hear the concerns of women. And then after that, this thing happened on May 2nd, the strike, you may have heard of it. I was a captain before that. And then what, what a captain means is basically, so all these roles I'm talking about are all volunteer outside of my normal job. But being a captain before that would mean every once in a while, there'll be a meeting and you have a team, which is basically a roster of WGA members that you keep updated on what's going on um, politically and actively in the union. And once the strike happened, you transition to being essentially a strike captain and I'm a strike captain who's also assigned to a lot, uh, which is one of the places we're picking at in Los Angeles. I'm assigned to Amazon mainly. And being a strike captain, it's a multifaceted role. Sometimes you're a therapist. There's lots of emotional labor, like members are scared about losing their health insurance, helping members get access to our strike loan fund. And, you know, members expressing like anger or guilt because this affects more than just them, but you know, crew. And then it goes, it ranges from that emotional labor and to suddenly becoming, becoming a labor organizer and <laughs> working with other unions and groups, organizing a little bit, a lot of event planning, organizing food drop-offs, 
you know, sometimes politicians visit us on the picket line. So organizing, rallying people, it's a leadership position for sure. And I hope I get some sleep once the strike is over. Yeah, it's amazing to see you do your work and also seeing so many other Asian writers that are out there. Because when we think about typical kind of labor organizing, we, we don't really think of a particularly diverse imagery. It's it's kind of like Sally Field holding up a sign in, in the middle of, a, of some you know factory. So can you actually tell us about what's at stake in the current negotiations and why the WGA chose to strike? In the simplest terms, what's at stake is that it's an existential threat to having writing in film and television be an actual sustainable career. And something I've always wanted to point out is that writers are not necessarily striking to have a steady paycheck that in any creative field, you know, ranging from even journalism or any or two screenwriting, that would be really outlandish and ludicrous. We're striking so that once you've made it in Hollywood, you can actually have a career and a middle-class wage. Because right now, the only way to be in Hollywood is to come from a very financially privileged background. And right now, the AMTP is trying to reduce writers, screenwriters in film to work for free more than they already do. You heard that correctly, working for free. It's almost like asking someone to go in and do a shift at a factory for free and get like their third shift paid. And that's essentially what they do to feature writers. And for TV writers to actually be hired and in rooms and not overwork the showrunner, which for those who are not aware, showrunners are kind of like the high school principal at a school, but they're like the high school principal of a show. And imagine having a school with no teachers and just (laughs) the principal running everything and handling all the students. It wouldn't work. And so the AMPTP, which is sort of the body of the studios who are negotiating, have refused to counter on our proposals and essentially not legally bargain in good faith when they're supposed to. When they did counter, it was very insulting. For instance, when it came to AI, they offered us a seminar, an educational meeting on AI, And that's like the equivalent of you going to your employer and them offering you a, uh, I don't know, vocabulary lesson on the word raise. You know, you're asking for a raise. Here's the etymology of the word raise. You're like, I know what it means. This is what I'm asking for. And so there was never any real discussion. There was no real deal, period. I really do believe we were forced into the strike. If you go back to all the press that was released that night, The AMTP released that there was news of a strike first before the WGA did. It was all like, I dare you to strike, right? And I said I was going to explain it very simple, but I got complicated. But coming back around to it, it's we're fighting for having a sustainable career in film and television, period, and to protect the working and middle class writers who are not earning that much. They're earning around like at the low end, 50,000, 60,000 a year. Yeah. And I recently saw a graphic of the executive compensation for Netflix's executives. And Mm -hmm. I think whatever their compensation, just like a fraction of it would cover the cost of what the WGA is is asking for. Tell us a little bit about stats. I mean, the big studios and the, the CEOs, they're making a ton of money, right? Yeah, and something I've wanted to clarify is that what we're asking for is less than 2% of the money they make off of writer content. So there's no, we're not asking like 
what Amazon makes when they deliver, you know, prime groceries to you, or we're not asking for profits off of iPhones, right? We're literally asking for if we write a TV show and it makes $100, we get less than $2. And if anything, the pressure is on writers. It's still a very like capitalistic thing that we're asking for that the pressure is on writers. We have to create good content. If we don't make you money, we don't make money. And if anything, we're trying to protect the ecosystem and we're just asking to share in the wealth that we make off of you. And so with the CEOs, unfortunately, a lot of their pay is incentivized to reduce the profits of like everyone who's working for them and working class because it would be a way to increase their pay. And that's just the way they're, that they're structured. But if, if you look at the CEO to employee ratio, it's like something ridiculous, right? It's like 248 to one. We're asking for what we've already asked for over the next few years. It's already cost them in their strike. I, I did not expect to be part of a labor movement this summer, but this labor movement is something that is about the wealth circulation. Since the 80s, all this money has gone to the 1%. We're asking for just the middle class and working class to be able to survive. It's, it's particularly insidious, not just for the workers who are providing the content, the, such as yourself, the, the, the creatives, but also the consumers. I mean, they've gotten us used to eight episode seasons instead of 22 episode seasons. And then they're also pushing toward just filling the gap on content. And I, as a consumer, are really appreciative of the changes that the current writers have, have created with regard to diversity. I mean, the, the quality and the scale of content as an Asian American has grown tremendously. And my fear is, is if they're always looking at the bottom line, eventually we're going to go back to the dark ages where Asian Americans aren't represented. You know, have you seen an increase in opportunity for API creatives? And, you know, how does that affect our representation on screen? I think after the success of Crazy Rich Asians, there definitely was an increase in wanting to hear Asian stories. And that's amazing, right? And it's great to see Asians you know, not play stereotypes and have literal main character energy. And I really think that it's important that we move in that direction because unfortunately with COVID and Asian hate crimes, those on the rise, even though a lot of the news hasn't reported those crimes as Asian hate crimes, I personally am seeing them as that, is that we see more humanity of Asian Americans on screen we also not only see crazy rich Asians, but uh, wretched poor crazy Asians on screen and see the full span. I think that's really great. And unfortunately, I think if we don't get what we want in the strike, like something that has been really disturbing for me is that for those the next generation entering the film business, you do have to come from a somewhat privileged background. And as we know, there's a certain demographic who are very privileged. And what does it say when arguably art in film and television is made by more privileged people and your employer is in even more control of you than ever because there's less of you and what does it say for film and television that we make in the future we're already in a country that's banning books right and you know as i'm not sure if you're familiar but hbo max was created to be a diverse hip version of HBO, but they got rid of that and they rebranded to just Max. And I, as you might have seen in all the text write downs and 
in the last few months, the business will do business, conduct business however they want. If they want to cancel shows, then that's just the nature of the business. But a lot of diverse content was canceled. If they try to reduce the workforce of writers and it's only going to be the super privileged who create the film and TVC, it's a little scary in terms of like, what are we going to see in the future? Yeah, definitely. As a political practitioner, I was really excited when I read an article about how tactical the WGA strike was and how some writers had to get up in the middle of the night to assemble a picket line at a film set at 3 a.m. in the morning. That's not easy. You can't get me up that early or that late, <laughs> depending upon how you look at it. Um, this takes a lot more work and dedication than social media slacktivism and performative mass rallies. I think particularly the Asian American community thinks it's about you know, these types of things where you just make a comment on social media or, or you attend a rally and then you're done. Um, how important and effective do you think these tactics are to forcing the studios to come to an agreement? Well, first of all, thank you for saying we're strategic. We're mainly a union of introverted vitamin D deprived <laughs> writers who are neurotic and awkward and suddenly became labor organizers overnight. And I can't really get into the specific uh, strategy, but I can say that it's all about being strategic and getting the AMPTP back to the table. And at the same time, every action we take, we're trying to be very mindful of other workers who are not writers and how they're impacted by the strike and how our sort of collective labor action affects them, you know, during production shutdowns and whatnot. So everything is very much a balance of trying to be strategic and conscientious. And something I'm telling everyone since I have on this podcast, the platform is to donate to the Entertainment Community Fund, because that's a fund that the Writers Guild has helped put together because we knew that the strike will affect others besides us to help crew, even rank and file executives who are being affected by this because they're not the enemy as much as the corporate 1% wants to <laughs> create this infighting. It's really us against like the top 1% who are, you know, with their mega yachts and their emotional support yachts. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, 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 it's so important to have that unity and for people to respect the picket line. It does make things difficult for sure. But when say the Teamsters are going to be on strike, they're going to expect you to respect their picket line. And that type of mutual support among other unions is is critical. I know that even though I'm not a union member, I'm very pro-labor. And if, if a union is picketing a grocery store or anything, I will not cross a, a picket line. And a lot of elected officials will also not cross a picket line. And it's actually quite inspiring to see other people really come out and support for what WGA is doing. We're going to add the link to that fund onto the show notes so that people can donate. I will personally donate as well. How can AAPI elected officials and the greater AAPI community support the WGA and API writers during the strike and after an agreement is ratified. For example, a few years ago, California's legislative ethnic caucuses successfully supported efforts to make diversity hiring efforts a condition of extending the state's lucrative tax credit. Are there ways that they can be more active in helping what you're what you're doing? I think right now it's uh, showing up on our picket lines is definitely one way for support, that visibility and rallying the community if they're more publicity I would not be opposed to any aunties and uncles who want to send sustenance to the picket line. It's really exhausting. I mean, there are days where I'm eight hours on my feet 
you know, if anyone wants to send a bun me, uh, which is a Vietnamese sandwich, yeah. I won't be opposed to that, especially the history of that sandwich and how it's sort of like a subversion of French colonization and is a street food that's symbolic of the working class. So I'm really rooting for someone to send bun me. So I'm putting that out there. <laughs> So if they wanted to do something like that, is there like a strike schedule or like who would they contact in order to find out where to send it and how many or, or whatever? Like right now, I'm one of the organizers who's like organizing some of the food food lots. But let me get you an email that I you could post in the, the show notes. But that would be really amazing. <laughs> and going to your question in terms of like once like post strike and you know, this will be over is that once there's an agreement, I think just politicians continuing, you know, pro-union policies and legislations, especially those that like protect our First Amendment right to protesting. God forbid, years from now, if there's another strike or a labor movement that, you know, people have their rights to go out there and do what they're doing for civil disobedience. That's awesome. Um, I've been involved in politics and API activism for about 30 years, and there's an activism slump during the 90s through the mid-2000s that I believe was a result of kind of a pernicious promotion of the model minority narrative that AAPIs are, are successful only because they follow the rules and don't rock the boat. Seeing more AAPI faces on the WGA picket line is so inspiring. Do you think more AAPIs are now ready to rock the boat by embracing organizing and political action than before? I definitely think so. I saw, so we had a picket of Asian American writers in the guild and I saw someone wear a shirt that they made that said badass Asians causing good trouble. And that like sort of subversion of the John Lewis quote, like really warmed my heart because it's about rocking that model minority myth that we're not like perfect and we're human and we have our own needs too. And the other day I was at a picket and I saw this older Asian woman walk by, who someone who looked like it was my grandma's age. She was not picketing, but she pumped her fist at me. And I, I don't know about you, but like to see someone older than you kind of show sort of the reverse filial, like deferential respect, but also show that emotion. It was really like, oh my God, that's so sweet. And I think it just goes to show that a lot of what we're doing and from mentors and writers I know who have been through the 07 strike, I was not a writer then, is that there's a lot of public support. And I do feel like we're on the right side of history because we're literally fighting for middle-class income. And in some instances, to not work for free. <laughs> for free. I, can't, I cannot emphasize that enough. As a new feature writer, I'm astounded by the amount of times I'm asked to do something as a favor and then get paid later or, or not and or wait or possibly never even get paid. And so I think in terms of like, there's a, so much public support that to see Asians on the line like that has been really great. I think like the stereotype of being quiet is sort of falling away. One with media representation, post crazy rich Asians. And I also think What's one something that I saw during BLM is that a lot of Asian Americans came to sort of reconcile with anti blackness in the community and came to learn that they were a prop in white supremacy. And I think that all of it converged to Asian Americans being more active. And I think we're also at an inflection point in the community where even second or third generation immigrants especially Gen Z who have grown up very angry and protesting. I mean, 
their social media platform is TikTok, which is kind of ominous when you think about it. And so I think for, especially for a lot younger generations and a millennial like myself, getting politically activated is very much in our DNA because we've been, I guess, excuse my French, like screwed so bad that <laughs> at a certain point, we're like, wait, this, this, this can't happen because we're not going to be able to survive. So I think it is heartening. I think a lot of that passive behavior is kind of going away because for a lot of communities, we're just fighting for survival. Yeah, I, to I totally agree. And I think that one, you know, the story of that elderly lady, I, I really think that there are a bunch of older Asian Americans who escaped communism or faced the racism when they first got here. Really, even though they never verbalized it, they understood the impact. And I think that like my parents taught me, you know, keep your head down. But there were times when we stood up and then they were really proud of it. And once they realized that it was okay and they want to encourage you, they're, they're all in. And, you know, it's in our DNA to, you know, to fight. Our history is, is that we conquered the modern world. We, you know, that the most feared pirate in the world history was a Chinese woman who commanded 400 ships and terrorized colonial Europe at the time. So I think it's definitely in our DNA. And I think our goal of both the podcast and what I think hopefully is in the future is to be able to continue to curate those narratives. There are differing perspectives on the issue and, and more nuanced and context to our participation in, in the world of civil rights so that it doesn't perpetuate the myth that we support anti-Blackness because there are quite a few examples of Yuri Kochiyama, who was at Malcolm X's side, or Grace Lee Boggs, who was a tremendous supporter of Black civil rights in the Detroit area. And those stories get erased by the mainstream and us being able to take those back into our arms and hold them with pride is, is super important to at least give everybody an opportunity to really make a decision based upon the full knowledge of our experience here in the United States? No, for sure. I think that I echo everything and I love a good Ching Shi reference. <laughs> I think there, there was a lot of fear mongering that kept a lot of Asians quiet because we thought speaking out would be more harmful to us. And I think a big Asian value is like collectivism and we're just looking out for the community. I mean, even before COVID, if you go to Asia, if you're sick, you usually wear a mask because you don't want to get someone else sick. And I think they sort of used our own values against us. And I think it's really important that we have to remember that in this labor movement, we have to stay united because there's more of us than there's of them. And I'm not just speaking for writers, but the other unions, the crew from, you know, Teamsters to Ioxy and whatnot, because I mean, literally the, the history of Hollywood, like the Oscars were created because they didn't, because they saw, I believe it was IOTSI that unionized first. And then the producers were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't want them getting, getting, getting an idea like this. Let's just give them a fancy award show, right? And distract them from like the idea of a union. We're trying to dismantle like a century of <laughs> union busting and a powerful PR machine. It's not easy. And you know, everyone I've spoken to, the strike just feels very difficult, but we have to stay united because you know, these are very powerful corporate machines. I've heard people previously from previous strikes that they, they used to insert people who would cause trouble, like actors on the picket lines who would like cause dissent or try to cause chaos. And I wouldn't be surprised if like 
oh, God forbid, we're in month three or four of this, that they try to do that. And I think it's just important that we all remember who's not neutral and who's the enemy here <laughs> because this fight is like really big. And, you know, for me, I'm literally fighting. I don't know if I'm going to have a career after this, you know, and I, I'm definitely at risk of losing my health insurance. But I know this fight's really important because it's for future generations. That is the context is that the other side is going to use whatever crappy tactics that they can because they're fighting for billions in profits, whereas you guys are fighting for middle-class income. And being in politics as long as I have, I've seen people stoop to such low tactics just for the cause of profit and to protect corporate interests. That's why I'm a Democrat. That's why I support Democratic candidates. You mentioned Iyati. I remember a story. I worked for Judy Chu and we were in a really difficult campaign and um, she was having a hard time getting support because the other person that she was running against had a huge head start. And one of the first unions to support her against in this underdog campaign was Yahtzee. It was just such a huge boost to have them back her. And then that laid the foundation for her winning the race because upon that union support, other unions decided to hop on. So all it takes is, is you know one group to stand up and then that will attract other people to come on board and you know, build that unity that's critical for victory. So definitely what will promote what you're doing and try to drive some support to you guys. Any last words of encouragement for the Ronin Nation before we sign off this week? I know I already mentioned it, but please donate to the ECF fund because we're very aware. And I personally have fundraised and made t-shirts for the ECF fund. I did a Taylor Swift picket and we made Taylor Swift slash Union Pro shirts. We raised over two grand this past week for the ECF fund. And so please donate to that because you know, the strike affects more than writers. And thank you everyone for the support. I feel like I can't speak for everyone else, but I'm always like, do people like us? And then you're like, oh, people like us. And you, and it's, so it's really like uplifting to see that at the picket lines and um, anyone wants to send by me, I'm going to push for that. <laughs> awesome. Well, I have to say out of all the picket lines, you guys have the most creative picket signs, obviously leaning into your strength. And I forgot to ask as a burrito sommelier, where's the best burrito in LA? So right now I haven't been there, but I've heard Equator Coffee source their burrito and I'm blinking out on the restaurant that they source for on Pico Boulevard, but because those burritos used to be at Super Domestic, but they've changed their recipe. And right now that's my favorite. I also really love Koufax and Corner Cottage, but I haven't been there in a while. Uh, Tacos Via Corona, I haven't been there in a while, but that was the one that Anthony Bourdain really loved. And I could do a whole episode on this uh, subject matter. But right now, I believe Equator Coffee near the Ivy Culver City train station has like the best burritos. And Koufax would be like the second for me. Awesome. Well, very cool. Thanks for coming on the show. Really an honor to have you and really inspired by what you're doing. Thank you so much. All right, Ronin Nation, that's it for this week. We'll see you next time. If you are inspired by the exploits of the amazing Asian American badasses on the Ronin Project podcast and want to find out how you can learn more about politics or help Asian American candidates, click on the link in the show notes to join the Ronin Nation's national progressive movement to inspire, organize, and empower Asian Americans. Until next time, Ronin's Roll Program. <laughs>